You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. So we're, we're in Romans right now, Romans chapter 2. This is a great book. I love Romans because it gives you this complete idea of what the gospel is all about. All about. And, you know, the gospel really is about Jesus, and it points us to him completely. So we're going to be speaking about that. Now, this morning, a little bit of historical context, because it's important to today's passage, which is the last half of Romans. Uh, you know, there's the commentaries I read, the Romans, the church in Rome, I should say, doesn't seem to have been started by well-known apostolic figures. It has actually been described as being kind of leaderless for the period of time leading up to this letter from Paul. And one of the th- thoughts is that Paul may have read, written this to the Romans to set them straight and to really give them an, a, a clear understanding of what the gospel really was all about. Uh, this letter is written 28 years after Pentecost. Uh, it is believed that a lot of the people that started the Roman church were there in Jerusalem for Pentecost and then because there was so much travel back and forth between Rome and all of the outlying provinces, which, of course, at that time uh, Israel was, is that people went back and forth and people went there and started a church. A couple things to know. This letter seems particularly directed at the Jewish converts that are living in Rome in Jewish churches because at the end of Romans, Paul says, greet all those who are in the Gentile churches. So that indicates to me that there were Gentile churches and Jewish churches. So uh, it's important to remember that because he's going to start this, our portion this morning telling them, okay, if you bear the name of Jew, and then he goes into, this, into this, this portion of Scripture. So there were a couple of problems that grew in the church during this time, and one of them was that a lot of times the Jewish converts felt like they, would requ- they needed to require the Gentile converts to convert to Judaism and start to keep the law. And that included circumcision, which is what we're going to be talking about today quite a bit. This is uh, an example of why before you agree to preach on a certain weekend, you should check the, the section first before you agree to it. No, no, I want to do next week. Uh, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> but uh, there's a couple of main points from the first half of Romans 2, Romans 2 that I kind of want to reiterate. Uh, Paul says, you know, there's no partiality with God, Jew or Gentile. Uh, he, he doesn't view one group as more saved than the other group. There, we're not more favored as we enter the kingdom of God, as we come into God's presence, as we uh, live our lives for him. There's not the favored group and the unfavored group. Well, I'll, I'll let you come along, but you get in line behind those ones. It's not like that. Uh, there's no uh, favoritism or partiality. Um, and he goes on to say that if you have the law the Jews, and you transgress, you're judged by the law. If you don't have the law, but you have a conscience, you're judged by what was on your conscience. And we know that everybody's conscience tells them it's wrong to do certain things and that we're supposed to do other things, like it's wrong to murder, you know, that you don't need a written law to to tell you that because nations and peoples without anything in writing know it's wrong to murder or to commit adultery or to steal. And, you know, the the list goes on. Mainly the Ten Commandments is what we're talking about with those. But he also tells them in in uh, verse 13, 
It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, the Jews had grown up hearing the law. Your whole life, you're, you're just saturated with the law of God as a Jew. And uh, so their worldview was, was formed by that. And, but he says in too many cases they were not doing it. So Romans 2.17, where we're starting this morning, If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? So my first point this morning is it's a good thing to know, to recognize, to agree with, to believe all the right things. Because the Jews, that's, that's the place they were in. They, they knew the truth, and that's a good thing. Uh, they took a lot of pride in who they were. They took a lot of pride in the fact that they were identified. They were the descendants of Abraham. This whole story of Abraham, uh, God coming to Abraham and, and reckoning or considering him righteous because he believed and then making promises to him and bringing this nation out of him among other nations. But the one particular nation that he's going to give this land to, which has these eternal purposes, it was a big deal in their minds to be a Jew. It was a big deal. And the Jewish nation, the, the, the nation of Israel, is a big deal in God's history because he has identified that group of people as the group of people that he was going to bring the Messiah through. And his, his redemptive plan for the world, for all the nations, is centered around what he did with Israel. And so it, it was a big deal. Uh, they were partakers of the Abrahamic covenant, this promise to give this nation, this land to this nation, and then do certain things through that, through that nation living in that land. Uh, it was a good thing that they accepted the law and the prophets uh, and to give hearty approval to what they knew to be true. Uh, so they, know, they knew they'd been chosen by God for a special purpose. And, you know, they had been entrusted in Romans 3. We're going to see where it says that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So that's the law. And then this continual succession of prophets coming primarily to call them back to the law and to obedience when they would get away from it. And there's an example there and a warning to all of us that it seems to be something in our nature. There's this battle, this war between the flesh and the spirit, which is going to be continued later on in Romans, that we all deal with. And we have an example of that in the nation of Israel and of God's heart of continually calling them back to himself. And we're going to see his heart uh, in today's message. So uh, because of that special status that they knew they had, so they considered themselves to be teachers and correctors and guides and lights like we just read. They did, they did view themselves that way. And Paul is saying, it, this is all good, but be careful. And he gives us a warning out of James. He, James tells us, you believe that God is one. You do well, but the demons also believe. And they shudder. And so knowing all the right things is good, but we need to be doers and we need to, to go beyond just giving a mental agreement to a set of facts. So um, you believe that God is one. That's a direct reflection back to the law. 
that there are these Jews that he's addressing uh, would recognize. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 6 says, Now this is the commandment, and let me say that I think just prior to this is when he reiterates the Ten Commandments, and they've been given to them. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me, that's Moses, to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of our fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then this is, this is the referencing in James. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. So there's the requirement to be obedient, but it's supposed to come from the heart, not just a set of rules that we grit our teeth and grind through every day. We don't want to be doing it, but we do it because we're afraid not to do it. He wants it to come out of our hearts. When uh, uh, somebody came to Jesus at one point and said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus' response was, love the Lord your God, directly reflecting back to this again, love the Lord your God, love from the heart, love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what he wants all of us to do. I have a story, though. I'm kind of a subject matter expert in this whole area of believing all the right things, just not doing them. Uh, When I was 11 years old, (laughs) was that blunt enough? Okay, good. I was about 11 years old. My family, we kind of had a go to church once in a while kind of, kind of ethic to us. You know, we were Christians because I guess we lived in America. And uh, so at 11 years old, I was sent to a weekend Christian camp down in San Diego County. Uh, we lived in, in uh, uh, Torrance at the time in, in Southern California. And that's the first time I remember really hearing the gospel. And now I'm sure, you know, that we hear stuff and then we hear stuff. The part I heard was that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, that he came and died on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins, and you believe that and you accept it, then you're good to go and uh, you're saved. You're a Christian. And so I took that part in. Now, whether the other part of it, that we also need to submit our lives to him and trust him with our lives and say yes to him, I didn't really catch that part of it. But I did accept those truths. And over the next decade of my life, you know, I would have, I would have told you adamantly that I was a Christian because I believed this set of truths. But I had never said yes to him in my heart. And it wasn't until almost 10 years later that... Uh, you know, I was growing up at this time in Orange County. The whole Jesus movement thing was going. Everybody knew people who were Christians. And I remember you before you were a Christian. And then the testimony was there of how their lives had been changed. And so I was receptive to that idea. Somebody gave me a book or recommended a book that I read. And I remember getting to the end of this book and it dawning on me that I had never said yes to Jesus. I had never said, I, you know, and my prayer sitting in my room, 
after reading this book was, I don't know where this is going to lead me in my life. I don't know what, what's going to happen from this, but I'm going to give you my life anyway. And I submitted my life to him. I didn't even really know what that meant. Uh, maybe that's a good thing we don't know what that means. <laughs> but, but I just said yes to him. And you know, that day, I, I look back, that's the day my life changed. It's like, it's like God came into my life at that point and started changing things from the inside out. And so, uh, I'm not going to tell you what the book was, because there's things in it I don't like now. But they, the, the, the message of it was, was that uh, we needed to say yes to him and submit our lives to him. And so anyway, um, that's kind of my story. So my second point this morning is that it's not enough to know and agree with all the right things. And we need to take it beyond just a mental agreement to a set of facts. So back to uh, Romans 2. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say, by the way, let's not, remember, not, not forget that Paul is preaching to Jews who have the law. They know what they're supposed to be doing, and they take a great amount of pride in who they are, their lineage, and that they've been given the law and the prophets. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And then he quotes out of the Old Testament, I think this is Isaiah, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. I mean, he's, he's blaming them for the nations blaspheming God because of their testimony of doing, not doing the things they, or doing themselves the things they say you should not be doing. <clears throat> and it's interesting that at the end of that little portion there, Paul wants to point them back to the glory of God. He wants them to realize that they're not glorifying God. They're causing God's name to be blasphemed by the, by the things that they do. So my third point, outward appearances can be deceptive. Uh, and reading on in, in Romans 2, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision... Circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? And this is where he really puts a stick in their eye. For he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So let me just stop real quickly. If you, uh, some of the younger people are here, if you don't know what circumcision is, I'll make it really easy for you. Ask your parents. <laughs> so now circum- circumcision was this outward sign of the covenant. At eight days of age, every male Jew was to be circumcised. Now, let's go back to Abraham for a minute. So God considers Abraham a righteous man because of his faith. And he makes this promise to him that this land is going to be yours and your descendants. And he's going to do these things. That's in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 17, he reiterates this whole idea, God does, to Abraham with this promise to his descendants. Now, they're all going to put a lot of confidence in this. Uh, calls them to be obedient. 
And, he, and as a sign of this covenant that God has made with Abraham and his descendants, he institutes this idea of circumcision as a sign of, the comp, of, of that, of that uh, uh, covenant. So a covenant is like a contract. Nowadays, we go enter into a contract. You want to buy a house. I don't know. How many pages did you have to sign for your home mortgage? You just did a lot. 60 pages of putting your initial at the bottom of every single page, signing it at the end, having a witness. Uh, they didn't have written contracts back then. They entered into verbal contracts with one another. And one of the things they might do is pick up a handful of dirt and dump it out over their head and say, may I become like, the, like this dust if I don't fulfill my, the terms of this covenant. That was one thing they might do. Another thing that was done <clears throat> excuse me, was that they would take an animal which had value and kill it and cut it in half, separate the halves, and the two members of this contract would walk between those parts. And basically they were saying, if I don't keep the terms of this covenant, may I become like this animal. When God enters into this covenant with, the Jew, with Abraham and his descendants, they take two animals, they kill them, they separate the parts, and then God puts Abraham to sleep and God walks through it by himself. That's a significant thing because what he's saying is, it doesn't matter what your descendants do. And he tells them later, it doesn't matter what your descendants do. I'm going to fulfill this contract. I'm giving your people this land forever. Now, there have been times when, because of their disobedience, they were removed from the land, but they've come back. That's happened several times, and the Jews are back now in their land. But God gave it to them, and then he instituted you know, the law, and he gave them the prophets, uh, to, to be part of his keeping of this contract, whether they obeyed and did what they were supposed to do or not. So this whole idea of a covenant is a big deal. They put a lot of confidence in it. He institutes circumcision as part of that covenant, and then Moses puts it in the law so that they all have to do it. And he says if, if somebody doesn't have this done, he's to be uh, cut off from his people. So that it was, a, it was a requirement of the law. So they took this whole idea of, of circumcision, lumped it together with the law, with their status as, as inheritors of this covenant, these promises of God, and they put a lot, of, a lot of stock in that. But it was never supposed to be just that act that happened to a boy when he was eight, eight days old. And we're going to look at a couple of scriptures out of the Old Testament to kind of get an idea of what God's heart is for this. This morning. So Deuteronomy 10, verse 16 says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. So apparently there's some kind of a, uh, a difference between having a stiff neck, and we all know what that means. That, you have a stiff neck when you're unsubmitted, unbowed, you know, you're a no person. You know, and I was in law enforcement for 29 years, and we always would talk about, you know, there's yes people, there's maybe people, and there's no people. And you would figure out pretty quickly who the no people were, and you'd have to adjust how you approach them based on whether they were a yes, maybe, or a no. A stiff neck means you're a no person. I'm not going to submit to God. I'm not going to bow before him. I'm not going to obey him. I'm going to do my own thing. Like Steve Barrios shared, uh, the most common song sung at funerals is, I did it my way. Gulp. You know, that, I don't think I want that sung at my funeral. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Not even as a joke. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, we, yeah, probably so. 
<laughs> so he says, he tells them, you circumcise your heart, which is the opposite of having a stiff neck, an unbowed, unsubmitted, unbroken spirit, not spirit, but uh, we talk about breaking before the Lord where you finally unstiffen your neck and say yes to him. Deuteronomy 30 says, Moreover, the Lord your God, the Lord, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The consequence of this not having a stiff neck but a softened, circumcised heart is so that we will love him. And that's what he's producing in our lives. Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So he wants us to have a softened heart towards him and to love him, and that's the purpose of it. And he says that he will do it, and he also says it's something we have to do. It's kind of like sanctification. The Bible says sanctify yourself. That means to set yourself aside and say, I belong to God. I'm, 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 I'm for his purposes in my life. And, uh, if we don't, and then on the other side, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us through a lifelong process of continuing to set us apart more and more for God. And that's something that he does in our hearts. That's the same idea that we have here of, of circumcision of the heart. So Paul says it's of great value, this law, keeping the law. But if you're going to keep the law that way, you have to keep the whole law. And he just established with them that they don't do that. So that's, that's why keeping the law as a, a way of salvation just doesn't work, because we don't keep it. And Jesus said, you know, if you offend the law in one part, you've offended the whole law. And none of us can say that we've not offended even one part of the law. So, you know, he goes on just to reiterate that if you're a transgressor of the law, that turns to the Jews, he's saying this, that turns your circumcision into uncircumcision. And an uncircumcised man who keeps the law is as a circumcised who will sit in judgment of the other, which had to be shocking to them. But what, is, what did Jesus say about the law? Did he come to do away with the law? He did not. He said he came to fulfill the law. The law tells us how God wants us to be. And part of that process of sanctification is where we more and more keep the law from the heart, though, not just on the outside. Uh, kind of add, adding insult to injury, Paul tells them that it's not what's happened to you on the outside that makes you a Jew. They must have really taking a hard look at this one, um, it's that inward softening of your heart that makes one a, an actual Jew. So true circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. So what really does that mean? It's, again, it's not legalism. It's not based uh, a religion that's based on adherence to a set of rules, whether we feel that way or not. It's a changed heart that makes us want to serve him, want to obey him, want to live our lives in a way that, that makes him happy. Uh, it's not what I will call here today dead orthodoxy, where you believe all the right things, but without doing them. It's just a, it's a mental agreement with a set of facts. That's not what it is. Um, it's not something that a church can do for you. Oh, are you, are you circumcised of heart? Well, I go to Westside. Oh, okay. No, it's not like that. 
It's not something the church does to you. It's not something your parents can do to you. It's not something you can really do to yourself. It says to circumcise ourselves to the Lord, but that softening of the heart really comes from the Holy Spirit. It's something that he does, and we need him to do it. At the cross, Jesus was cut off from the Father. He said, Father, why have you, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Because he had, was, for the first time in his life, separated from the presence of God. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was cut off or separated from the land of the living. And at the cross is where we can come to see that circumcision happen in our own hearts, that softening of our hearts. And there is no other way that it can happen. It happens at the cross. Colossians 2 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, complete. And he's the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Does that just make you want to praise God? It makes me want to say, yes, Lord, take my life again. It's all yours. I want... I want my life to, to, to be what you want it to be. Sometimes I hear, especially younger people say, well, I want, I want to make a difference, you know, and that gets drilled into them in certain places. You know, I, this might be shocking to some, but I don't care as much about making a difference as I care about being obedient and being exactly where God wants me to be. And if that makes a difference, great, but I want to be obedient first. That's, that's the first place we need to be. I want to point out this morning, uh, several of the commentators I read this week, they kind of drew a comparison between this outward circumcision and baptism. You know, we're not saved because we get baptized. Baptism is an outward expression of something that's happened on the inside, and that's what is being said here in this Colossians portion. Because uh, we're, when it says we were buried with him in baptism. Uh, we die to ourselves when we come to Jesus at the cross. The cross is a place of death where we say, I'm not my own anymore, I belong to you. And baptism, when we go under the water and then come up, that is a symbolic of that burial with him. And when we come up, we take that big breath, which is symbolic of uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what baptism's about. So we can never let any outward thing, baptism, tithing, it doesn't matter. There's nothing on the outward that saves us. It is God's looking at what's on, what's on our heart. Uh, Thursday night, a guy came up to me, and he goes, man, you threw a dart right through me today. And I went, I did? And he goes, yeah, I was driving up from Folsom, and I thought, oh, no, did I, did I give him a dirty look on the road because he cut me off? Or I, That's what I'm thinking. And he goes, no, when you talked about uh, you know, doing things from the heart, he goes, I was coming up the hill, and I thought, oh, I need to go to church tonight because I probably probably because he likes to watch football and he didn't want to be here this morning. But he he said, uh, it, I really I really needed to come to church and I was kind of begrudgingly here 
And when you said that, that just, that just hit me. So it's, it's everything in our lives needs to be done from the heart because we love him and we trust him and we want to glorify him with our lives. Um, if we can have the worship team come up now, Mike. You know, we, again, we can't put our confidence in anything other than the finished work of Jesus on that cross. That's where our lives, our hearts change. That's where all of these things happen is because of what he did there. And he wants us to experience him in this life and throughout eternity. I can say if you've never really trusted him for that assurance, if you've never said, yes, I give you my entire life, I will live for you, I'll do what you want me to do, I will die to myself and live to Christ, let me encourage you this morning that today your life can change like my life changed that day. And you can have that assurance, you can have that relationship with him, and you can have life. True life. Uh, if you've drifted from that place of assurance, you were there once, but, you know, we, we start filling things into our lives and those end up being the things that are important and we're just doing them out of momentum and out of some legalistic viewpoint that we just need to keep doing these things even if we don't want to. Recommit yourself to him this morning. Say yes to him from the heart. Uh, commit your life to glorifying him and he will... He will come in and change everything. Touch us so that we would obey you from the heart. We would have our hearts changed to to live for you and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.